every person who walks the planet, it doesn't matter you know, if they have no faith, a different faith, they're of inherent value. And so seeing people through that lens has been really meaningful to me as a person, and it's helped me in leadership roles to be able to try and help other leaders see people as you know fully human. Because in the military, sometimes you know you can't have some dehumanization that takes place. You know where someone becomes the enemy, and in order to kill them, I need to make them an object. And part of one of my roles is is to make sure that that doesn't happen. Welcome, I am your host Dino Pattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. I hope you enjoyed our two holiday special episodes even though we went a little bit out of our regular territory. Hopefully you enjoyed Wendy's conversation about Italy and got some good tips on what to do when you travel into my home country. And you also enjoy meeting some of my fellow members of the Squadcast podcasters community. Today, we are back with a traditional format episode and we have a great guest, Brandon Harding. Brandon is a military chaplain and a leadership and relationship coach. He has over two decades of experience His military service includes three tours to Iraq and a deployment on an aircraft carrier. He has a genuine passion for assisting people and organizations as they pursue purpose and meaning. And that is led by his belief that the right pursuit of purpose and meaning leads to greater productivity and to a healthier work culture, and ultimately to building deeply satisfying relationships. So the idea that we can gather great lessons and leadership from the military is definitely not a new idea but what you will hear from brandon that is very different from anything that you hear from most lessons about leadership in the military is his deep held belief that at the core of effective leadership in the military is establishing one person's humanity and that without humanity you cannot have effective leadership As you listen through the episode, hopefully, and as you listen to some of the stories that he tells and to how his vision was shaped, hopefully you will be impacted as I have been impacted and you will look at the way you lead, at the way you are led, and at the way you build and shape your relationship in a broader way, the same way that I have. So as you can tell, this has been a very special conversation for me and I hope you enjoy it. Brandon, welcome. It's great to have you here. Why don't we start with you giving our listeners a little bit of a sense of who you are and what's your background and what got you to where you are now? I am in the military. I am a chaplain in the United States Navy. I've been doing this job for about 20 years. I've served with all different kinds of units in the military, with Marine Infantry Battalions in combat, aircraft carriers out on the high seas, Navy CBs, and just kind of a whole range of, of units. Over the last couple of years, I've been designing and leading leadership growth retreats, marriage enrichment retreats, and personal growth workshops and retreats. So that's where I've been the last few years, and that's kind of where my passion is at at this point in my career. You're almost serving two missions. You're not just 
in the army or not just a chaplain. What were the relevant points in your life that led you to sort of start following down this path? That question, I think where it begins is I wanted to contribute something, you know, to the betterment of society. And I really felt like I had a lot to offer in, in those terms. I had a, a background in counseling and in helping people. And I, you know, was coming from a, a place of deep faith. And I'd been in the military before. And so the idea or the, the sense of vocation around being a chaplain just really resonated with me because that was going to be a role where I would get to go and serve my country, serve the, the Marines and sailors um, that were a part of you know, the military. And I could do that from a place of kind of bringing in the best of spirituality, emotional intelligence, psychology, just kind of this holistic approach to helping people improve their lives. Yeah. And so one thing that I, I don't know that everybody may be aware of, we, we were talking about this when we spoke prior to the podcast, the role of a chaplain in an institution like an army, even though it comes from a place of faith, is though it's not a denominational role. Is that correct? Correct. So everyone, everyone who's a military chaplain has to come from a faith tradition and you have to be supported by that faith tradition while you're in. What that means in practice in your day-to-day -day life is you care for everyone. You take care of whoever walks through your door or whoever you encounter in your day-to-day -day life. So that could mean someone who doesn't believe, you know, as far as like not having any faith, or it could be a faith or a belief system that would fall way outside of what your comfort level would be if you were serving, you know, a church or a synagogue somewhere. I mean, I, I remember one time in uh, 2007 in Iraq, I had a young man come to me who was Wiccan and he wanted to perform a certain ritual. And so my job as a chaplain was to kind of help him be able to do that within some parameters to make sure that, you know, he wasn't doing anything that was completely outside of the realm of what needed to be done. And what that did is it really built a deep connection with us because he could come to me, I could help him with this part of his faith system and do it in a way that honored him as a person. And I remember there was some pushback from other people, you know, from leadership who were like, you can't really let this kid do that. You know, that's not, and I'm like, no, like, you know, he's not doing anything that's, that's outside of the realm of, of what could be allowed where we're at. And so we need to allow him to do that. And that created a connection between me and this young Marine that later when he had some problems in his personal life, he came and reached out to me because he knew that I was there to, to care for him as a, as a human being. So I'm curious, spending 20 years in this new perspective where you're serving every spiritual system of beliefs versus your own, how has that changed your own relationship with your faith? I think in some ways it's, it's reinforced my belief from my tradition that every person is of inherent value. Every person who walks the planet, it doesn't matter, you know, if they have no faith, a different faith, they're of inherent value. And so seeing people through that lens, I think, has been really meaningful to me as a person. And it's helped me in leadership roles to be able to try and help other leaders see people as, you know, fully human. Because in the military, sometimes, you know, you can't have some dehumanization that takes place, you know, where someone becomes the enemy and 
in order to kill them, I need to make them an object. And I think part of one of my roles is, is to make sure that that doesn't happen, to keep people still fully people, fully human, and not become object. Yeah, and I think you mentioned, you know, that there's certain aspects that are specific to the military. So in one way, I think it's it's been, you know, in, in the tradition of business, it's very popular to talk about the lessons of leadership for the military. But I think that many times it's done in a very superficial way. So what I'm interested in is in hearing your perspective of as you, you know, spent your career in the military and developed as a leader and then helped form other leaders. What are like the the most important lessons that you took from the environment you're in? And then how did you work to make them your own? So maybe I could share a, a quick example. So I was on an aircraft carrier, just brand new to, to an aircraft carrier. And they have this communication system throughout the ship that's called the 1MC. And so when someone makes an announcement over that, it goes throughout the entire ship. And so they made an announcement that there was a casualty. It's called the CAS rep. And so they said, hey, there's a casualty, da, 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 da. And so I was like listening to it. And I thought, oh, well, my office is close by the medical department. I'll go over to the medical department and wait for this casualty to come in. Someone who'd been hurt. It wasn't a combat situation. You know, it's probably someone who got hurt somewhere on the ship. Well, while I'm waiting there, one of the, the Navy corpsmen is like, hey, sir, can I help you? And I was like, oh, I was just waiting for this casualty to come in. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, over the announcement system, they said there was a casualty coming in. And he's like, that, that's not a person, that's the ship. And so the casualty was the ship, not a person. And so I think that kind of captures in some ways, some essence of some elements of the military where the people are the object and the ship is the human. And so really working to help make sure that the leaders saw the people as the people, not the ship. And so I think that's, you know, one of the big takeaways. And that's not all leaders. I mean, I think most of the, you know, senior leaders really did see the sailors and Marines that work for them as people. Sometimes it was that middle level management was where they really struggled. You know, they were really, you know, focused on the mission and therefore the people just became the object to get the mission done. Yeah. And so let's talk about like how you effectively lead within a context like the military. What are some of the traits that some of the effective leaders at all levels, you know, whether it is the admiral or whatever is the equivalent of the middle management, what are some of the traits that they possess and some of the lessons that maybe being within an institution like the military enables the development of those traits? I think they're, they're in some ways the same traits that transfer across to the business or you know, other management type worlds. The most effective leaders that I've seen, whether they were at the mid-level management, so in the, you know, in the military, that's your petty officers or non-commissioned officers. Number one, they take the time to actually listen to their subordinates rather than just really being, you know, almost dictatorial. And that tends to be the default mode in the military is you're going to do it because I said you're going to do it. You know, they kind of take that authoritarian approach to it. The really effective leaders, though, that inspire people to follow them don't 
do it that way. They really do listen. They really do sit back and take the time to kind of understand what's going on, like what's the situation. And that's a hard sell. We were doing a, a leadership development training with some Marines in uh, Western North Carolina where we would go backpacking and, and rock climbing with these guys for a couple of days. And we would talk about leadership. And the one thing that most Marines struggled with was this concept of vulnerability, which I know is big across all avenues of leadership is being vulnerable. And they thought and they believed that to be vulnerable was, was contrary to being a good leader. That, that was a hundred percent opposite. Like a good leader should always be almost superhuman, you know, no weakness. And what they came to realize is that was a flawed, a flawed concept. It just doesn't work well. How do you teach a concept like that in an institution where there's such a rooted belief, the idea to like almost telling them that like, actually you, you really want to be strong. Actually, what you're seeing as a weakness is a strength. How do you teach that? Yeah, that's a great question. So how we did it, I'm not saying we had the market on it, but how we did it was we would do something first that really would challenge them physically and a little bit like emotionally, psychologically. And what we used for that challenge was rock climbing and not in a gym, but like on an actual cliff face. So we would go out and do this. And even though, you know, they're Marines, a lot of them, most people don't have experience actually climbing up a cliff face or rappelling off of a cliff face. And so that, I guess, injected a little bit of humility into them. And we had a few, we had more than a few that wouldn't participate because it was so scary, like to, you know, rappel off a very high cliff with a pretty high consequence fall. They would look off and be like, no. And so that injected just a little bit of humility into them. And then when we would sit around the campfire, we had a guided discussion around leadership that posed some questions that really got them to be reflective and think and were structured in a way that kind of opened up some dialogue to where they were actually able to be vulnerable with this group of people. Now, we tried to make the groups mostly the same in the sense that they were kind of peers, so it wouldn't be a junior person opening up to a very senior person, but you know, it's kind of like a peer, kind of a peer to peer sharing type thing. And then that set them up for the next day. We would do, we would use a developmental model called immunity to change. And that's, we would walk them through that model with their column one goal, talking about what they needed to improve upon as a leader. And by far and away, the big assumption that was driving their inability to really effectively lead was this assumption that vulnerability is, is wrong or in some way, you know, I can't be vulnerable. Yeah. And I am familiar with immunity to change because I do use it in my work, but maybe if you want to give like a quick tomato overview of what I like, sort of the key mechanics of like immunity to change and how a big assumption relates to a goal that somebody wants to achieve. Yeah. So immunity to change, I think the quick reader's digest version is you know, we all have a goal that we want to achieve. We have something that we want to go do, and we may or may not have been able to achieve it. Usually you haven't, and that's why you're sitting down doing an, what's called an immunity map. So the map itself, what it helps do is it surfaces kind of the underlying commitments, those hidden commitments that are actually blocking you from 
achieving your goal. And it's usually at an unconscious level. So it's called surfacing the immune system. So someone might have a goal to be more intentional with how they talk to their wife or be a better listener. But what they find out is there's this underlying belief, their big assumption that's that actually is the opposite of their goal. And that's what's really keeping them stuck. And so until they figure what that big assumption is, they can't really make the change. So the model helps people understand why they're stuck. And then there's some tools to help them get unstuck. So that's the basic premise of it. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about like the dictatorial leadership model in the arm. And that's a question that has always fascinated me, which is within a system of a military system, you are making decisions where at some point, as somebody who is like, whether right on the front line or a little above, you are in a position where you just need to execute the decision because you not executing that decision compromises the overall impact and may cause to your own fatality, other fatalities or defeat. So at some point, you, as you're a member of the organization, you're making a commitment of faith and trust towards your leadership that what you're asked to do will be the correct thing. How do you teach the leaders to sort of hold up their own bargain in the trial, their own end of the bargain in the, like what, what's the responsibility that a leader has to the organization within the context, assuming that the organization makes that trust commitment? And how do you think about that? Yeah, I think the, the classic example that's usually shared in relation to this and like needing to make that split decision right now, you know, it could be that there's a, in Afghanistan or Iraq, there's an insurgent with a machine gun that's shooting at your unit. You don't have time to sit around and like understand everybody's, you know, where they're coming from and then listen. No, you have to take action right there. Hey, I need you to go take out that machine gun, assault through that. And you're putting that, you know, Marine's life at risk when you give him or her that order. So it's all the training and the background behind that that leads to that execution. So the Marine leader or the sailor, if they can really learn how to be, to use your language in, in you know, that authentic leadership, to, you know, to really be human, to be human with the people that they lead, then when that order comes to go do this thing where I'm going to put my life at risk, there's a sense of trust and confidence in that order that now you're going to go without hesitation to execute it. But if that's not built prior to that, then maybe, maybe you're hesitant. You don't put yourself out there, which in turn could compromise your ability to go take out that machine gun. The side that I'm more interested in is like, you know, as the leader and then given that order, what are some of the steps that you can trade? Because obviously some of the trust has to be in the system and in the process, but there has to be some personal trust. So what are the steps that an effective leader can take in building that trust with their team, you know, whether it's their platoon or the whole army, if you're the admiral or... Yeah. Yeah. So I think it kind of goes back to what we said earlier. Number one is teaching those in leadership to really look at the people that 
they are responsible for as human, as fully human people, not as objects. So that's where it's really got to start. So if I'm in a leadership position and I see those people in my squad or my platoon as fully people, then I begin to interact with them from that part. And by me doing that, I'm also revealing to them my humanity. So the, it's teaching them that in order to really lead well, you have to be somewhat vulnerable with the people that you're in charge of. And I think one of the best ways that I've seen that happen in my own life as a leader and in the people that I've worked with is leaders who are willing to own their mistakes and apologize. I think a great apology where you, you own it, you don't justify your mistake, you don't try to you know come up with a creative way to say, hey, I did this thing, but it's actually your fault. But you own those things, that just creates a sense of trust in the people that you're leading when you do that. And what are some of the other, so if you think about when you are running this leadership training programs, what are some of the other traits that you're trying to instill in your leaders? To go along with that, I would say you want them to have some compassion. And I know that sounds like probably opposite for the military, like, you know, train military leaders to be compassionate. That comes back. If you're going to ask someone to possibly give up their life as you're leading them in a combat environment, the only way that you can really do that is to develop a sense of compassion for those that you lead. And that comes with spending a lot of time with them, uh, training together. And so the military does a lot of like small unit type exercises where you go spend days and days at a time training together where you come to know the people that you're with in a training environment better than you know your spouse, your kids, your, you know, your brother, your sister. You know them and see them in places and contexts that you don't see other people. So it really does create this deep connection between you and the people that you serve. There's a book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe, and he talks in there a lot about developing that deep connection with the people that those in the military, sometimes when they leave the military service, that's what they really struggle with is that loss of connection. So, it, so some of it is like, okay, so how do you facilitate that connection? How do you create that deep sense of being as a part of a tribe? So from my experience, that comes from enduring shared suffering, which I know like might sound a little crazy, but you have to go through things that most people would not want to ever do, but you do it together. And going through that shared suffering, that shared hardship creates a connection that it's hard to replicate. And I don't know exactly how you would do that in the business world where you say, hey, we're going to create some shared suffering for our team. We're going to go out and do a 50 mile hike with all this stuff on and you know, we're going to suffer together. So I don't know what, how you would apply that to the context of the business community. But I know in the military, that's one of the key components of creating a sense of team is this concept of shared suffering. Yeah, so like building a, on this idea, and I don't know how much you can share in terms of what's, because your, your leadership program are all within the context of the Marine Corps, right? Primarily the Marine Corps and the Navy as well, yes. And the Navy, yes. So, but they're all within part of the military. You're not doing private for... So anything that 
you can publicly share about you know how are this program structure what are some of the key activities and events and and you know if somebody were to think about okay i want to bring my leadership team together what are some things so we actually are in the process of developing this i have a, a side coaching business that I'm, we're in the process of developing this model for the civilian community so that we can take leaders from outside of the military, whether they're in business or like government, you know, non-military government out to have these kinds of experiences where we would take them on a wilderness-based event where we would probably tone it down quite a bit. You know, we wouldn't <laughs> take you out and uh, try and crush your soul by taking you up some major mountain, but bringing you out to a, a wilderness-based place. And so one of the rules that we use is there's no digital connection while you're out there. That's the first requirement. You cannot take a cell phone, a smartwatch that connects you to the outside world. You have to be off the grid for this time that you're out there. And the first thing that that does is it forces you to, to interact with the people that are there. So you've probably seen, you know, you go to a business meeting, you walk into the meeting and what's everybody doing around the table? They all have their phone out or their tablet or their laptop or whatever, and they're engaging with that rather than with the people around them. Not always, but often. And so when you take people to the woods, they don't have that avoidance mechanism built in place. So they have to start interacting with each other. And then we have developed some focused questions that really help people connect. And so we spend some time talking through these questions to help people open up and connect. And then over the course of a few days, we have some some shared suffering, I'll call it. Although it's, you know, we're not, it's not like going to army ranger school or, you know, <laughs> going through Navy SEALs or boot camp or anything, you know, it's not anything like that. It's just enough to make people uncomfortable. One of my closest friends is a former ranger and he's told me about his ranger training. I'm like, I don't think I would be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we know that it's only a small percentage of the military that even can do those kinds of things. Yeah. And so we're not trying to like, you know, really, like I said, crush somebody's soul. We do want to make it challenging enough that it makes them uncomfortable. And it's in that uncomfortableness that it opens up the space for, for some of the real dialogue to begin. And then we use fire. Um, we have fire built into the program as far as like campfire. We have guided discussions around the fire. And one of, I think, the key components, too, is at the end of every day, as we gather around the fire, we have each person share a gratitude from that day's experience. What that does is it starts to help them reframe what they look for in the day. So it could be a miserable day. Like there's been some days on some of these backpacking expeditions where it rained all day, sometimes for two days in a row, like nonstop, like just downpours. And so as people are like wet and cold and, you know, in some cases pretty miserable, they're forced to look back on the day and find something in this day that I could be grateful for. And standing around a campfire or sitting around the campfire and hearing people frame a gratitude out of this day is also meaningful. It begins to like help them recreate or, or reframe how their day is going, which then is a lesson that they can apply when they get back to life and things aren't you know going well. That's great. So uh, if I were to just like reframe it in a 
more abstract way. So take people out of their natural context, separate them completely from the outside world so that they can focus on the group that they're in, put them through situations that are uncomfortable, and then have them reflect together jointly and then find, if you will, the gift, the little gift in the day. Yes, exactly. That is perfectly restated. Excellent. And I'm curious, in the 20 years that you're there, if you have gone through a process of assessing who you wanted to be as a leader and how you want to show up as a leader and what that's been like. Yeah, I think moving kind of into that age of where I'm now 51, I think the last probably four years have been the most in some ways, personal growth as far as like reflective and like really trying to think about that exact question. And I think for me, what I've decided is I, as I'm moving into this space in life is I want to be able to really be my authentic self, to really be in that place where I can be true to, to who I am in the difficult situations. I think it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I'm authentic. I'm who I want to be until it bumps up against a challenge or someplace where you've like, where you're sort of pushed, you know, getting some pushback on who you believe you are being true to yourself. And so I think that's the area where I really want to move into more fully this stage of my life is really get to that spot where most of the time I am who I am in all contexts and all places, even when there's pushback against that. Do you have an event or anecdote that you'd be willing to share in that when you were found yourself in that situation? Yeah. You know, I think I've tried to practice this most of my career. And so I'll share one time. So in the military, people get punished for different reasons. You know, you might get in trouble for doing something. And we had a situation where someone was going to be punished. And I completely disagreed with how that punishment was going to happen. And I knew that if I went and talked to the, the commander and told him that I disagreed, the only way that I was going to be able to get him to see my perspective was to talk about something that was going to damage someone else that was a friend. And so I had to decide, what do I really believe here? You know, am I concerned about the truth in this situation, which is going to alleviate, you know, the punishment that's going to come to these military personnel. And, and in doing so, I'm going to, you know, really make some other people mad. They are really not going to like me. They're going to feel like, you know, I dimed them out. Or... So I struggled with that for just a little bit. But then I thought, man, if I don't do this, these guys are going to get punished in a way that is not really, in my mind, fair or ethical. So I went and talked to the commander and told him and shared the story. And then immediately after that, I went and talked to the other people that I knew were going to now be in trouble. So they were officers also that were going to be in trouble because of this. And I, I know this is kind of vague. I'm not going into any of the details. But no, no, I, I don't expect you to violate any confidentiality, but I can feel the struggle. So Yeah. So that was hard. So that was one of those growth moments for me where it came at a cost because by presenting this material to the commander, 
I definitely lost some friendships, but I also knew that I had to be true and authentic to who I was if I was gonna if I was gonna be able to sleep good at night, so to speak. And are you sleeping good at night? Yeah, yeah, for the most part, I think so. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. But you brought up actually, I was keeping the most difficult question last, and some of this relates to this, which is. I'm fascinated by your role within the context of the military structure because you are in a position where you have a ton of accountability in some ways, but in other way, given the hierarchical structure of the military, you probably don't have an equal amount of authority. And so a lot of your leadership, just as in this case, you knew what was right but you didn't have the authority to just make the decision. And I am assuming that in most of your life, as it relates to the overall organization of the military, your job is to go and convince leaders to make decisions one way or another. And that's a position that many people find themselves. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions or ideas as to how you navigate that because I, i'm assuming that going and advocating on behalf of situations with officers who have the authority to make the decision it's a pretty common occurrence for you and so if what are some of the skills and the advice that you have developed and that you would have for other people who are in that situation in many times probably a lower stakes type of environment yeah That's a great question because in reality, that's a lot of what a chaplain does. The concept that we talk about a lot within the chaplain corps is um, leading from the middle, like you just stated. We're outside of the chain of command, so we don't have that authority to like, hey, I said this has got to happen. You better do X. You know, that's not our role. Our role is more of like, you know, like a consultant, you know. We're like, you know, in many ways, like internal coaches, internal coaches to the organization. So getting those leaders to buy into what you're saying and agree to what you want to do, it is sometimes a real, real challenge. So I think the first thing for me that has been effective is to really try to put myself in the leader's position. Like, okay, so what is important to this man or woman in this situation you know where are they coming from what's driving their beliefs about this thing and in order for me to have any influence on 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 the outcome that's the first place i have to go i have to go to that place of real empathy to to understand like where they're at because a unit commander whether they're the captain of a ship or the commander of a marine infantry battalion It is the most lonely position of leadership on the planet. I mean, there is no one really for them to kind of like talk to or really kind of process stuff. And so sometimes the chaplain becomes the only person that's his or her sounding board. And so coming into that situation from a real place of genuine empathy for that leader and what the weight that's on his or her shoulders I think that's the starting point. And then the other piece that's helped me is to assume that they're operating from the best intent. Like if I go in and think, oh, 
this person is just like a mean jerk that doesn't have any compassion. That sets up the conversation to almost be like a combative thing. But if I come into it really having spent some time thinking through what's got them to this place and that place of genuine empathy and then trying to focus on, hey, they're coming from a place of good intent, assuming good intent and what they're thinking, then I have a chance to influence maybe the outcome of that situation. It doesn't always happen. I mean, sometimes they're like, I'm not going to do it that way. And other times they sit back and they're able to reflect a little bit more and maybe the outcome changes. Um, and I've had some, some, some good success using that approach. And I've had some senior leaders adapt and make changes based on some of those conversations, which has been really meaningful to me, especially when what I was trying to advocate for was like the welfare of the people in their unit. And so at the end of the day, they realized that what I was bringing to them was going to help their unit function better. They were going to be able to perform the mission that they wanted to achieve. That is a great insight. And I think, you know, because I think people think of leadership as a role or a title and they don't realize that leadership can be exercised at any point in place. It's just a willingness to take a point of view that you think of something that you think it's good for you and the organization that you're a part of and being willing to advocate on, on, on its behalf. And so the other side of this question is obviously, hopefully you've had more success than, than less in the situations, but what are some suggestions that you may have for somebody who, you know, walks into the office of someone who has power with a really strong conviction and doesn't manage to get the outcome that they want? How do you live with that and how do you maintain the sort of the courage and, and the willingness to just keep going back at it? Yeah, sometimes it's tough. Like, I, you know, sometimes it is really tough if you don't agree with the ultimate decision that's been made after advocating and, you know, trying to give the best advice that you can give. I think what's helped me is to have a peer can keep things confidential that you can just kind of process that experience with rather than like hold everything in and just keep that, you know, anger or frustration pent up. And it's not really like just getting together just to, you know, gossip or backbite. That's not what I'm talking about, but it's just sort of to process because it really comes down to a sense of loss. You have a, a sense of loss that what you were trying to do didn't happen. And so there's a sense of loss around that. And so having someone that you can process that emotion of that sense of loss when it didn't go that way. And then to go back and try to, again, humanize the leader because it's easy to other the leader, right? You know, you put them in the other category. And so trying to keep their humanity at the forefront for future interactions, because if you place them, you know, as other, well, all of your future interactions are going to go negative as well. Brandon, that is a great insight. And I have to say that it's refreshing to hear how many times you're putting humanity at the center of your vision of leadership within the military. And, you know, humanity is not necessarily the first word that comes to mind when people think of leadership within the military. And so 
To close out the professional part, shall we say, of our conversation, I am wondering if there's one anecdote of an event that you've been witness to or part with that actually has shown you the humanity in action. And if you would be willing to share that story with us. Yeah. In 2008, one of the big things that we did with my unit is we decided to host some coat and shoe giveaways for the Iraqi kids in, the, in this area where we were at. It got pretty cold in the wintertime and most of them didn't have winter coats and or shoes. A lot of times they were barefoot. So we organized this with people back in the United States and they were sending us, you know, just big shiploads of coats and shoes. And then we teamed up with the with an imam at the mosque and the Iraqi army and Marines. So it was kind of like a joint thing. They were hosted at a mosque, which kind of brought in the trust of the Iraqi people because it was being done by, you know, their primary leader, who's, you know, the imam. And then we would have the Marines and the Iraqi army there. And the Marines would help each kid that would come up, find a coat and a pair of shoes that would, you know, fit. And so now these little kids had proper um, attire for the winter. And what this did, it was twofold. One, it, it really did help the Iraqi people and especially these little kids. But for me, one of the really important things was, is it helped preserve the humanity of the Iraqi people. We'd had a number of interactions, firefights, you know, IEDs go off and we'd had a Marine killed just a couple of days before one of these coat and shoe giveaways in December. So the Marine had been killed by an IED and then just a few days later, we went back to that same neighborhood and did one of these coat and shoe giveaways. And one of the Marines who was interviewed afterwards by, uh, I think it was just a, an article, I don't remember who did the interview, but the Marine said what really struck him was by putting coats and shoes on these little kids, it reminded him that these little kids were people. He said, you know, it's really easy to start seeing all the people that we interact with every day as the enemy. And by doing this, it reminded me that they were people. And so I took that away as a big win. One of my jobs, I've always felt like, is to raise the humanity of the people that we're at war against so that when a life has to be taken, it's with real intent of something that had to happen. Any kind of war crime that happens out there is when the people that you're in combat with become less than human. And when they become less than human, then you can make those tragic decisions to take people's lives when they didn't need to be taken. And then that haunts you and others for the rest of your life. So this was a great way to, to help keep the humanity of the Iraqi people with the Marines. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing this very, very powerful story. And I think it's a great point to shift out of the quote-unquote professional portion of our conversation and get a little more to the personal. So what interests do you have outside of your professional life? And maybe is there a particular one that has meant a lot to you and maybe has had an impact on your professional life? Kind of as I've shared a little bit about going into the wilderness, that is very meaningful for me, both professionally and personally. And so that's been the way that I've renewed myself or moved into that the term used a lot these days is self-care, is finding peace and solace by taking some long hikes. I used to do a lot of trail running. Can't do as much of that now just because of a, a knee issue. But so now it's trying to get out into the woods as much as possible. I really believe that there's, there's a way that you can experience life when you spend some time out in nature. 
that it, it's just better than being cooped up inside, but getting out into the woods, and especially with COVID, like being able to just get away from things and just being in a place where you can kind of be free again, you know, take off your mask and you know, go up to the top of a mountain. It's fantastic. All right. Now, second question, and, and I know this may not apply specifically to you, but like I ask my guests in general, if there is a, an expression or a business cliche or something that is popular into jargon right now that is driving them crazy <laughs> and why do you have any expression? And maybe you can give us like a military expression that drives you crazy. What's frustrated me over the years is just, well, it's not a frustration, but it's learning the new acronyms in each place that you go to. I think that's the thing that's probably my key frustration is just the amount of acronyms in the military. And so when you bounce around between the Navy and the Marine Corps, each place has its own unique culture and its own unique acronyms. And so it's like learning a new language each time I move. So coming to my current assignment, the word that's just started to drive me crazy a little bit is, is this term called controls, which means your budget, you know, it's like, oh, well, these are our controls and this is the controls. And that term just, I don't know, it kind of has, just has like this onerous feeling like these are the controls. So I guess that's my current one. Thank you. And then finally, my final question is, I call it food for the soul or food for the body. And then I ask my guests to share one thing and as it may be like, food for the body so like if you have a dish or a recipe or a drink that is really special to you or if you want to go to the soul side and there's a piece of art an activity a book a piece of music or something that it's inspiring to you and that you go to when you want to find inspiration yeah so i kind of already shared a little bit about the wilderness so I'll, I'll, that's sort of how i feed my soul is going and spending time on doing that so I'll talk just real quick, I guess, about something that feeds the body. I'm a big fan of like baking. <laughs> and so if I'm particularly, and I just kind of need something that's tasty to just relax and just have something that's very good. I've, I've spent the last probably 15 years perfecting a chocolate chip cookie recipe. And I've gotten it to the point where I'll be honest, it's pretty legit. I mean, it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's taken about 15 years to keep tweaking it and change this and change that. So now, you know, if it's like, hey, you know what? I, I could really use a treat today. You know, I, I kind of need something. I'll make a, a batch of these chocolate chip cookies and then share them with my family. You know, I just don't go eat the whole couple dozen by myself, but, you know, we'll share a few. I may have to come and visit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the recipe. Thank you. Brandon, it's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much for your candor and, and your insights. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm going to ask you a little favor. Find somebody who you think may really like this episode and send it to them. And if you're feeling generous or if you really love the show, tell all your friends about the show and write about the show in social media. Every little bit helps. Also, make sure that you're subscribing to the show on your favorite listening platform so that when new episodes come out, you don't miss them. And then finally, if you are listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Good Pods, please leave us a good review and a good rating. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play one more song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Catania. 
If you're looking for Brandon and you want to learn about his programs and his wilderness coaching programs, you can find him at resetcoaching.com, spelled R-E-S-E-T-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com. You can find me online at authenticleadershipforeverydaypeople.com or you can go to the shortcut, which is al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. And I am on all social media platforms, on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at al4edp, with the letter D. And on Facebook, Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. And I can be reached by email, dino at al4ep.com. This episode was produced by me with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions, and it was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicholas Catania, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Now, here is the song by Susan Catania. It's her latest single, and it's a song about these turbulent times. It's called This Restless Peace. Enjoy. Like a buoy on the water Bowing its head to the wave We are wondering what storms we can weather And what we cannot say We are tattooed by the headlines Shell-shocked and struck down And we can't unsee the cruelty of the kingdom We fear we've become So we draw a magic circle With our lines of chalk and charm May this night not last forever Keep the ones I love from harm Beneath this restless peace Questions turn and turn us in didn't pay attention as we let the ties unbind 
Dismissing each dishonorable mention As true north came misaligned My neighbor is a stranger I don't trust or care to know And this winter of our discontent Pile snow on snow on snow Beneath this restless peace Questions turn and turn us in place Tethered to a tenuous grace That lies beneath This restless, restless peace. We hear the world unravel. Hearts with broken strings, hymns of deep disquiet, even angels dare not sing.